This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. This educational activity is accredited for up to 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. So to claim credits, answer the pre and post activity questions at diabetes.knowledgeintopractice.com which you can find a link to in the episode notes if you're listening in a podcast app. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly, who've had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today, we're discussing highlights from the recent 82nd scientific sessions of the American Diabetes Association. Returning to an in-person meeting for the first time since 2019, the conference was full of interesting symposia, novel data, and great discussions. To discuss some of the highlights, we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Green, who's Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism and Nutrition at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, as well as a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. You can find links to her disclosures, as well as the abstracts and trials discussed in today's interview in the episode notes. So firstly, one of the big stories in type 2 diabetes from the Congress this year was the presentation of the draft updated ADA EESD consensus statement, which you also presented at. Could you briefly explain the process and the rationale behind this? Yes, of course. Uh, So the last revision of the ADA EASD guidelines took place in 2019, at which time um, there was a a slowly accumulating body of evidence that certain classes of drugs or certain individual drugs improved outcomes beyond glycemia. And so there was a revision at that time. And as you might imagine in the past three years, um, we've steadily accumulated additional information and it was time to update the ADA EASD guidelines to be more in sync with the most recent uh, versions of the ADA standards of care guidelines for a choice of pharmacologic therapy in type two diabetes. Now, one thing that's very different about the ADA EASD guidelines is that it's really very specifically focused on the choices of glucose lowering agents. And this was debated to um, really a, a significant extent this year, but the, the ADA EASD guideline is much more focused upon that aspect of care. Now we've had to branch out a bit though, as uh, some of the glucose lowering agents are now used to improve cardiovascular or kidney outcomes. So the choices really extend beyond the need for glucose lowering. And it was, it was um, really not possible to uh, update the guidelines without including that information. One of the really nice things about the ADA EASD guidelines being so focused is that there is the opportunity to really expand on the care of the whole person and how that's involved in achieving glycemic targets. So as you probably have seen, there were some really beautiful graphics, I think, helping to convey that message Um, the need to assess patient characteristics, desires, goals um, in formulating a joint management plan. And then of course, this this continued message that we need to make sure to reassess patients in a very timely fashion and correct course to make a change in the treatment plan if the original plan was not successful or 
um, if the patient has changed over time, if their needs are different, um, if their um, health is different and they have developed particular complications. So I, I think that's where these guidelines really fill a much needed role. Thank you. And a key focus of this draft guidance was an increased emphasis on weight management. Could you briefly summarise what was proposed here and why? Uh, Yes, of course. And as you know, in the diabetes care algorithm, the pharmacologic therapy algorithm, for many years now, there has been a pathway uh, targeted towards the person with type 2 diabetes for whom weight management um, is a priority. And um, it's a little bit of a false construct because weight management is actually an issue for essentially everyone with type 2 diabetes. Almost everyone with type 2 diabetes um, is overweight or obese, particularly in the United States, I would mention. And so it's really an issue for everyone. I think we've tried to make this focus on weight a theme throughout the entire draft document and present in many, if not all of the figures that accompany the guideline. Um, And I think that there is an increasing recognition that weight management, in particular weight loss, is a very, very effective tool in both accomplishing the the, um, goal of glucose lowering where appropriate, but also probably in reducing the risk of diabetes-related complications and certainly weight-related complications. Some of what we tried to do this year were, was to um, highlight particular patients in whom weight management might be a top priority, such as um, patients with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, with obstructive sleep apnea, with heart failure, for example. And so that, I think providing some concrete examples of patients for whom this might be a particular issue will be more easily clinically applicable or translatable. It's also true that our ability to accomplish weight loss through um, either medical therapies or surgical interventions has has really dramatically expanded in recent years. So that that makes a focus on weight management um, all that more practical. Now, moving on to some trial data, there was also a lot of news at the Congress around new data for the dual agonist tazepatide, including the first data from the Surmount program. What was your main takeaway from this presentation? Well, it's it's very impressive data. And um, it's not surprising, I don't think, that um, that tazepatide would help with weight loss um, or result in weight loss in people with and without diabetes. Obviously, the incretin system, the central nervous system, the um, GI motility, these are all um, factors that help to regulate weight in people with and without diabetes. So it's very um, rewarding and exciting to see those data. Now, what many have pointed out though, is that um, individuals without type two diabetes treated with tirzepatide appear to lose more weight with the medication than do people with type two diabetes. And and that's always a little bit of a conundrum. It's not really clear why the medicines don't, I shouldn't say that they don't work as well, but they they result in likely less weight loss in people with type two diabetes than without. Um, It may be that people with type two diabetes are on other medicines that um, interfere to a certain extent 
with the ability to lose weight. Um, it may be that they have enough um, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinism that that again um, helps to promote weight gain or weight maintenance. And then the other possibility, if you look at it the opposite way, is that um, people who uh, develop type two diabetes uh, may fundamentally be people for whom weight loss is more difficult. So that, that was my uh, main impression, but again, the results are impressive in people with and without type two diabetes. And uh, hopefully, um, hopefully this will be an intervention available to um, most, if not everyone affected. And we also had a pre-specified analysis of the SURPASS-4 study, which showed that tazepatide reduced albuminuria and slowed kidney function decline. What do you think this might mean for future trials? And might this be suggestive of a similar effect in the GLP-1-RA class? Yes, I think, um, you know, I think, um, and I don't want to necessarily um, equate the tirzepatide data with the GLP-1 receptor agonist data, but that they're the most like classes of drugs. And we know from the GLP-1 receptor agonist cardiovascular outcomes trials that um, as a class, and maybe with some particularly good agents uh, or effective agents in this sense, um, there is uh, there is certainly a signal that there is delayed progression of kidney disease and type 2 diabetes when people are treated with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, for the most part, the benefit seems to be very highly dependent upon or attributable to delayed progression of albuminuria, in particular, delayed progression to macroalbuminuria. And so some have argued that because the harder kidney outcomes um, uh, have not been proven yet to be altered significantly with the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists, that we should not use them in people with kidney disease. But um, it's likely due to the patient population that was enrolled in those trials, and they really weren't a kidney disease population for the most part. So um, the information that we have so far, both from many of the GLP-1 receptor agonist cardiovascular outcomes trials and the accumulating body of data with tirzepatide, which suggests you know, certainly delayed progression of albuminuria, um, that uh, it looks very promising. And I'm looking very much forward to additional data further investigating the effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists, specifically in patients with chronic kidney disease, and then the additional kidney-related information that we will glean from uh, the SURPASS cardiovascular outcomes trial, the CDOT of tirzepatide itself. So I think it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, we don't prescribe GLP-1 receptor agonists to delay progression of kidney disease at this time, but that may simply be because we just don't have that evidence demonstrated yet. For those that were unable to attend the symposium on the future of diabetes with dual incretins, which you presented at, could you please summarize this session briefly and what specifically you focused on in your presentation? Well, that, um, that was an interesting mix of information in the, in the final day. And um, it was an opportunity to really discuss in greater detail and perhaps place in context some of the emerging data that we have um, about 
the effects of dual incretin therapy and discuss uh, the physiology, what we've seen so far and what the future might hold. And, and frankly, it was a dual incretin symposium, but the only one that we really have a lot of data available for yet is tirzepatide. So it was fairly tirzepatide specific. So we heard about, um, we, again, we had kind of a rehash uh, or a recap, excuse me, about the physiology, how um, stimulation of two different types of incretin receptors may be uh, physiologically advantageous. Um, we heard um, a bit about uh, the, what we know about the kidney-related effects of tirzepatide. Um, I discussed a bit the relationship between um, glucose lowering and weight loss from the available data. And it, it I found that very interesting because um, because we think that um, that tirzepatide lowers insulin resistance and improves beta cell function uh, largely through mechanisms other than those due to weight loss. So it's a really interesting compound that has a wide array of, um, of physiologic effects. Um, you know, we, I reviewed much of the data about the weight loss um, that we've seen in the clinical trials, primarily of individuals with type two diabetes, and it was really impressive. Um, that then uh, Julio Rosenstock wrapped up the session by arguing that diabetes should be treated to remission in a fashion similar to the approach used in chemotherapy treatment of malignancies, where we really need to treat aggressively at first with the goal of achieving a remission and then continue monitoring to see, for example, if there is a recurrence or progression of disease and then treat again at that time, which I thought was really um, thought provoking and, and novel. And um, uh, if we are to be successful in doing that, would need to be an intervention that took took place primarily in the primary care setting. So that would not be necessarily um, something implemented by diabetes subspecialty care providers or clinics. It would need to be something that happened at the kind of the grassroots level. So we'd need to get the word out. There were also a lot of data presented on several other dual and even triple incretin-based drugs. Are these types of drugs likely to play a big part in future diabetes management? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, as, a, as an endocrinologist, and I, I care for patients with uh, fairly long-standing and complicated type 2 diabetes, um, I, I think we never have enough tools um, to treat type 2 diabetes and um, really reduce the risk of complications, which is what diabetes management is all about. I mean, glucose lowering um, to a certain extent is, is really a surrogate for reducing the risk of complications. And, and I would love to see um, additional agents, agents that work in complementary ways become available because each person's type 2 diabetes is really unique and what they can tolerate, what they can afford, what they can, what they respond to can vary in really um, untold numbers of ways. And so to have a really um, rich armamentarium of agents to use um, makes, I think, controlling diabetes and hopefully living with diabetes a bit easier for everyone involved and affected. And finally, what's your main takeaway or highlight from the conference? 
Yes, I, I think revisiting um, Julio's commentary about early and aggressive treatment, I think that's a theme that we've seen um, emphasized in many uh, scientific symposia, in many guidelines recently. Um, and and I, I think we can't overdo that. Um, I think there's quite a lot of data suggesting that very early intensive therapy helps to preserve beta cell function, potentially um, reverse the hyperglycemia related to type two diabetes, um, and uh, in the long run, potentially reduce the risk of complications. Unfortunately, we tend to take a very long time to intensify therapy adequately to control hyperglycemia. So in that sense, the opportunity is lost. Um, we also are not particularly good at using interventions like bariatric or metabolic surgery very early on in the course of type 2 diabetes, which is where it is much more likely if implemented within the first five or six years of a person's uh, lifetime with type 2 diabetes, much more likely to result in uh, disease remission and reduce the risk of long-term micro and macrovascular complications. I do think that this emphasis on early treatment, whether it is um, something akin to chemotherapy as Julio would suggest, or just simply increased awareness and, and less time spent uh, with patients in, in poor glycemic control, I think will be a tremendous benefit, um, tremendous benefit over the lifespan uh, of people with type two diabetes. This brings us to the end of the episode. In the episode notes, you can find references for the discussed abstracts and presentations, as well as a link to the new and updated Diabetes Knowledge into Practice website, where you can find lots more free resources to support your learning in diabetes and a way to claim CME credits for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review or rating to help other people find us. See you next time.